Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. During worship, this verse came to me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's a sobering word. Chapter 1 is talking about, it's juxtaposing the ministry of Christ over and above angels. And, and uh, he's, he's speaking to a people that understand the concept of angelic ministry. They're Hebrew people. They have, uh, the, the Hebrew history uh, is replete with angelic visitations and all of these things. And, uh, you know, the, the, the gospel story, the intervention of angels. But the writer of the Hebrews, he's making sure they understand, listen, the ministry of Christ is so far superior. We don't worship angels. We worship him. And so then at the end of that, he says, are not angels ministering spirits that are sent to serve the heirs of salvation? And then he says, because of this, because of this, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. Not just pay closer attention, but much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What struck me during worship is just this, this feeling that I had of the distractions of American life. I've prayed this prayer many times, and I've, I've prayed it out to the Lord, and I've declared it, Lord, I know that American Western prosperity is not too difficult for you. It's not a giant that you can't fall. I'm not talking about God wiping out an economy. I'm saying that he's greater than the prosperity around us, and he can win our heart in spite of it. However, we need to realize the lure of prosperity and the wonderful lifestyle that we've been given as Americans. And there is this tendency for us as believers to drift. And drifting implies an unconscious, unintentional thing that just happens over time and all of a sudden we realize we're farther from the goal than we used to be. Because there was this slow unconscious, unintentional drift where we begin to kind of slide away. And we need to be very careful to be very intentional about our pursuit of the things of God. And I, I've just felt that lately for the church and I felt it in the morning in prayer. I felt it for my own heart and for others. And I've, I often pray, I'll say, God, just win us all over again. Lord, reveal yourself to us all over again. Jesus, win me again. And it almost seems like a violation of who he really is to even pray that. That I would even need him to win me a second time. But I have to humbly bow my heart before him and say, God, I am prone to wander. I'm not even talking about going off into sin. Not that any of us are immune to that. But I'm talking about us being captured by good things that blessings become barriers and that we find that they've, they've wrapped themselves around our heart. And so we need to pray that, God, that you'd win us all over again. Lord, give us a fresh revelation of who you are, that we would, once again, our hearts would be hooked and our, our hearts would be gripped by you. It was Charles Finney, the great revivalist. He said, it is essential 
that revivalists continually be broken down before the Lord. That there becomes a brokenness, that their heart is retenderized towards the things of God. I've known great men of God over the years that have been part of uh, international moves of God, moves of God that people have come from all over the world to visit. And their testimony was that they backslid during revival. It's not that they went into sin, it's that their heart was no longer tender. They became calloused. I want you to think about what a callous is. A callous, really, you could, you could define it this way. It's familiarity without sensitivity. A callous is when you use your hands or your feet so much that there's, there's, there's so much use, so much uh, contact that over time there becomes a hardness so that you're no longer tender to it. And we call that a callous. Now when you're working with your hands, that's a good thing. When you're referring to your heart, it's not. When I was in junior high and high school, I worked in a gardening place and we planted 50,000 tomato plants every year by hand. 50,000. And then we would, we would hoe those 50,000 tomato plants. It was four of us guys. And so we'd be out there hoeing all day long. And so even though I was a skinny dude, I could arm wrestle because for eight hours a day, I would do this. And uh, at the beginning of the season, every year, I would get these big calluses. Or not calluses, but blisters rather. And it hurt. I'd get the, and I remember I was, when I was homeless during that time, uh, I, I still had a job because I wanted to fund my habit. But uh, I was homeless. And so this family took me in and I was in their house and I was washing up after that first day of work and I had this big blister and it burst and I peeled it off and it was all pink there, you know, and about the size of my palm. And, and I thought, oh man, there's dirt in there. I need to clean that. I'd touch it. I'm like, ooh, it hurts. And I saw some alcohol on the counter. I thought, that'll clean it. Yeah, I wasn't a real smart kid. So I opened that bottle up and went, and because I was just a guest in a home, I couldn't scream like I wanted to. So I stood there looking in the mirror going, (laughs) and it immediately got hard. So being this intelligent young man I was, I did the other one. And I, but I had an instant callous because of that, that alcohol hitting that. Now again, that's good when you're working with your hands. But it's not good when it's your heart. And we can become familiar with the things of God. We can take for granted the presence that we walk into week after week. And if we're not careful, we become callous. And we need the Lord to retenderize us. Every time when we come in, we need to, we need to remind ourselves from whence we came. And uh, man, this morning as we were singing, I don't remember which song it was, but it just, it, I don't think it was that one. It was something about being delivered from the past. And I just reminded of where I came from. And, and uh, it was talking about being delivered. And I remember being in such bondage, I could not stop sinning. There's no way out. I was a hopeless prisoner of my own passions. And even though there was a desire in me not to do those things because it was destroying my life, I would make vows and I would make statements I'm not gonna do. I would even, in a drunken stupor, I would write notes to myself, you've gotta quit, you've gotta get help, you're ruining your life. And I I would put it in my pocket and I would wake up a couple days later in a strange place and pull that out of my pocket, like, what in the world is that? 
I'd read those things and I had a vague memory of writing them. I could never keep my vows. I couldn't keep my word. I was a prisoner. And it still marvels. I'm still blown away the fact that I'm a free man. It's been 40 years. But I'm a free man. And I know I'm not the only one with that testimony. Every one of us, if you are born again, you have your own version of that story. But there's something about it revisiting that and and getting inside, reminding ourselves of the despair that we once lived in and reminding ourselves of what it felt like and now juxtaposing that out of where we are now. It'll retenderize your heart. He who is forgiven much loves much. And we need to re-stir up that love in our heart by reminding ourselves of what the Lord delivered us from. And make no mistake about it. I've, I've met people, I've met people that were hardcore drug addicts, got saved, and never really had a passion for God, and over time just drifted off. And then I've met little old ladies that got saved when they were about five, and now 80 years later, they're still on fire for God. I mean, there's fire in their eyes, there's zeal in their heart. And it's not like they had this real jaded past from that first five years of their life. So what gives? How can we say he who is forgiven much loves much? And then we see these living examples before us of a guy who obviously sinned much because of his lifestyle. He, 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 that was clearly a choice to walk into those things and he sinned much, met Jesus, but he never, would, it never had a passion ignited and yet someone else who arguably didn't sin as much but loves more. And the answer is not, let me just pause, let me, let me deal with a little Christian myth here. The answer is not, well, all sin is equal because it's not. Let me say it again. Not all sin is equal. We tend to say that. Well, all sin's equal. And usually you'll hear someone say that when they're being confronted about their own sin. And so then they want to confront you. Do you ever overeat? And they'll get you to back off. I'm not saying you should go around confronting people about their sin unless you have the social equity, the relational equity you've got relationship with them. But that's our, our responsibility as people who love others to to call those we love and we're in a relationship with out of that. But when you hear that all sin is equal, it's not true. The law did not reflect that. God's moral code. For some sin, you had to sacrifice a, a dove. For some sin, you had to sacrifice an ox. And for some sin, you were the sacrifice. It was punishable by death. There was no sacrifice. The New Testament reflects that as well. First John talks about there are sins unto death. There's, there, there, there's levels of sin. Our judicial code recognizes that. There is malice aforethought, and then there's a crime of passion. If somebody commits a crime of passion, that is taken into consideration when they sentence that individual. They're still held accountable for their actions, but they're taken into consideration the, the, the state of mind at the time because it was a crime of passion. It wasn't something that they, it wasn't malice aforethought, but then you have malice aforethought. So if, if somebody in anger gets in a fight and kills somebody, 
That's not the same as somebody who plans and schemes and studies that person's lifestyle for a year before they take him out. There's a greater level of evil that's involved when you premeditate your murder. So that's not the answer to a guy who was deep into sin, meets Jesus, and never really has a passion ignited, and somebody else who never really lived in, according to our moral code, deep sin, but yet lives in a passion for God. The difference is how we see our sin. And it's a, the difference is when we have a revelation of his holiness and our own lifestyle. He who is forgiven much loves much, and the depth of your forgiven, forgiveness is the depth of your sin. If you only think you sinned a little, then you only needs a little forgiveness to balance the scales. And so we need a revelation of what God has really done for us. And when that happens, when God gives us that revelation, it breaks us down all, all over again. And our heart is tenderized and our, we're sensitive to him. Our affections are, are stirred up once again. And we need that. We need to be very careful that we don't just become familiar with what we have. Amen? All right, that's a freebie. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. This is an interesting passage. We've talked out of the uh, I've preached out of the second parable. Matter of fact, back in 2009, we preached on this passage, the second parable of this passage, a lot. We, we spent a lot of time in looking at uh, the parable of the talents and all that that means. Uh, but the first parable here in Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins. Now, the previous chapter is about the end of the age. It's talking about at that time, at the end of the age. Uh, look at verse 44 of chapter 24. It says, the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Uh, then just a few verses later, we go into 25 and it says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. When is then? He's saying at the end of the age, the kingdom of heaven will have a certain dynamic. Now, we need to re realize two things about that statement. So he's saying there's gonna be a unique dynamic to the kingdom of God at the end of the age. However, the end of the age started at Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, they applied the scripture out of Amos. The, uh, the, uh, in the last days... And, or Joel, it says in the last, not Amos, Joel, in the last days, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, see visions, and so forth. So the last days started at Pentecost. So over church history, from the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death, that's when the last days began, but there's a dynamic that becomes increasingly real and frequent that he addresses in these parables. So Jesus didn't teach things to his disciples that didn't apply to them. So this passage applied to them when they heard it. Although they were alive 2,000 years ago, they're listening to this, and it was relevant, and it was applicable but I would argue it's even more applicable to you and I today. 
Because as the end of the age comes, this dynamic repeats itself more and more. It's not just that it will be fulfilled at the end of the age, but it's a pattern in the kingdom. This is true of all the parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. And here we say, we see the first one. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And so he's giving us this picture of the church, the bride, waiting, or these bride, these bridegrooms waiting for the groom to come, and they're they're waiting for his arrival, his his appearance, okay? Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So now here we have this picture. They were all looking for the groom. They were all looking for him to come. It's not talking about people who didn't care about his, revi- uh, his arrival. They had structured, structured their time, their life, their, what was going on in their life right now so that they could be there when he appears. They had oil in their lamps. Every one of them had a burning lamp. Every one of them was waiting, and they all slept. They all fell asleep. Why? Because it took longer than they expected. You ever notice that about God? I don't know about you, but he always takes longer than I expected. When God makes me a promise, I, I hear it, and I think, it's, it's any moment now. And it rarely is. <laughs> Matter of fact, I got some promises from God I'm still waiting on. 35 years ago. And I know they were a word from the Lord. And so what, the reason it was important, what made one foolish and one wise was that the wise brought extra oil in case it took longer. Now there's an application of course for the second return of Christ in this. And I would argue that that's the primary application. But there's also a- application principles that we can apply in our life whenever we're la- waiting for promises, whenever we're in that, that mode of waiting for the Lord to do something. And during those times, our oil can run thin. And so we've got to be people with extra oil. So listen to what happens. So it says, but the wise took Flasks of oil with their lamps, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourselves." And so when he arrived, they'd all fallen asleep, their lamps were burning, but all of them began to burn low. And so what happened is when the call came, they trimmed the wicks, and those with extra oil had enough to stay. And so the ones without the oil said to the ones with the oil, they said, hey, loan us some of your oil. Give us some. And they said, no, we can't give you some because we don't know exactly when he's going to come, and we may run out. The fact is, you can't live on somebody else's oil. 
So what is this oil? That, that oil is that the presence of God in our life. The oil is that intimacy. The oil is the anointing in our life. And all of that needs to be guarded. And we need to make sure that we are always replenishing our oil. You know, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word is like a diamond. Diamonds are valuable and the word of God is valuable. Another thing they share in common is that the word of God has many facets to it, just like a diamond. And you can look at things from one facet and see things as you, when you look through that facet, but you're not seeing the whole diamond until you look at it from another facet. And to really understand the value of that diamond, you need to turn it and look at all the facets. And the same is true of the word of God. We need to look at the, very, the, the varied facets of the word of God. One of the facets in the word of God is that salvation is a free gift. And I'm very grateful for that. But if we're not careful, if we only look at things through the lens of the free gift, we lose some very valuable truths. This passage, it says, go and buy yourself new oil from the dealers. What in the world is that talking about? How do you buy intimacy? How do you buy... There, there's a lot of people that say, well, that's, that's not what that means. It, it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with anointing because you can't buy that. And it's because they only look at the word of God through one facet. And the foundational facet, the foundational principle, the, the foundation of all of it is that it's a free gift. But if we're not careful, we lose a dimension to the word and we end up living shallow lives. There's a very real element in the Christian life that there is a price to pay. There is a cost to the Christian life. And when we don't realize that, we don't pay that. And we end up living a more shallow life. There are things in God that God wants to give you that will cost you. Jesus paid it all, but there's a cost to the Christian life. Well, how do you reconcile those things? Well, when you're looking at this thing of the free gift, we're looking at it through the lens of soteriology, or what theologians call soteriology. It's the theology of salvation. And when we talk about the free gift, that belongs to salvation. And that is a wonderful thing. And that's the safety net to all the other truths. If you don't get that, you're going to end up a legalist trying to earn something you already got for free. And so this is the foundation. And I would argue that you're never going to break into other things. You're never going to walk in other things. You may touch them, but you're never going to have a stability in your life in the other things until you have this foundation built in your life. That salvation is a free gift. My relationship with him, my access to him was a free gift that Jesus paid for. That's soteriology. But there are other things in our walk with God that God wants to give us. There's ministry, there's work, there's operating in the power of God. There's these things that belong to maturity. There's these things over here. This is, we are a recipient. We receive as a free gift, and that's a wonderful thing. And again, that's the foundation. But that is not all there is in the scriptures. 
And if we reduce the Christian life to me simply receiving a free gift, then I will sentence myself to immaturity. And God wants to invite us in to other things wherein we are a participant. And in those areas of life where we participate with him, we cooperate as he operates. Matter of fact, the old King James Version word is uh, co-labor. The way we say it in modern English is collaborate. In the areas we collaborate with him, there's a price to be paid. And there is not a man or a woman of God worth their salt that hasn't had to pay a price for what they walk in. And that doesn't diminish the fact that salvation is a free gift. And again, that's the foundation. But neither does this negate the fact that there's a price to be paid. And so in this passage, Jesus taught his disciples, he said, in this parable, he said, go and buy oil. How do you buy oil? It's reminiscent of that verse in Isaiah where it says, come, buy without money. It's telling us to buy, but it says we can't use money. Well, if we can't use money to buy oil, then what do we use? And why would he use that phrase, buy? Well, what he's talking about is there is an exchange of value. There is some form of currency. Now, we know it's not money. We can't buy the things of God. We saw that with Peter, uh, or, uh, rather Paul, in the book of Acts when, when the sorcerer came to try to buy the gift of the Spirit. Paul rebuked him. You can't buy that with money, but there is an exchange of something of great value. There is a currency. What am I talking about? The currency that is valued by both seller and buyer, by both heaven and earth, is time. We have to, we, we use that phrase, let's spend time on that. Because we realize it's a commodity that is very, very valuable. One of the things that makes something valuable is it's limited, uh, you know, the limited access we have to it. I think we were talking last week about aluminum, how aluminum was once, one, at one time, part of, there was a block of aluminum among the crown jewels of England. Now we drink an aluminum pop can and throw away the can. Why? Because it's made, been made much more accessible. And time is the great equalizer. I've asked the Lord about this. I've, I've asked the Lord, God, why, why did you create us in a world that has such limitations? And these limitations were not the result of the fall. Time was not the result of the fall. Time was the result of original intention. God created a world in which we had limited time. We have limited energy. That we, we can, we're, we're locked into a physical body where we have to eat. We have to uh, clothe ourselves. We have to get sleep. And I, I've had some conversations with the Lord. I, I've asked the Lord, God, why, why did you create a world like that? Man, I could get so much more done if I didn't need the sleep I used to need. That I used to need. I, I don't need as much sleep as I used to. I do get up earlier, just I don't sleep as late. But you know, food and sleep and all these things that we need. Why, why would God create that? And the only conclusion I can come to, there's, there's a principle called the principle of design. So we can study 
the creation of the creator. God has a reason for everything he does. So we can study creation and come to some solid conclusions. And the only conclusion I can come to is that God created a world with these limitations precisely so he would make stewardship necessary. If we didn't have limitations, we wouldn't need to steward anything, would we? If I had unlimited money, I could give to everything and still have all the money I want to do anything else I wanted to do. So it would no longer be a reflection of my heart, would it? Because it's not a value anymore. I can just give it away. It might be valuable to you, but if I had unlimited funds with no cap on it, it loses its value for me. Stewardship is a very big deal in God's economy. Stewardship is the measuring stick by which he will measure us at the end of the age. What did we do with what he gave us? And God gives us limited resources. Now the fact is, we can see in scripture that he who has will be given more. And when, the fra- when this phrase says he who has, it's Matthew 25 later, it's not talking about, oh, they have something so I'm gonna give them more. It's their utilization of what they have. It's that they wisely used it. They were good stewards and so God gave them more. So you can even increase what you have on this side of eternity through good stewardship. But the fact remains that we still have to steward things because we have a limitation. And the choices we make, the the, the stewardship that we uh, enact in our lives reflect the value system of our heart. It really does reveal our heart. Jesus put it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Some of you may remember this song way back in the early 80s. I'm going to date myself. Way back in the early 80s when I got saved, there was this song. It was by a group, I think, called Acapella. And it said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Anybody remember that? Where your heart is. And I thought it was a great song, but they edited the verse and flipped it on its head because it sounded better in a song. And it was a violation of what that verse was really saying. The song said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. That's not what the verse says. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You think, well, wouldn't they both be true? Maybe at the beginning. Where your heart is, there your treasure is. But you can actually direct your heart through your treasure. Your stewardship will actually change your heart. Your treasure is what leads your heart and not the other way around, Jesus was saying. So what we put our treasure in, it will connect our heart to it. Our heart will begin to be led by our investment. It's like if you've ever invested money in a stock, then all of a sudden you care about what that stock is doing. I've got a little retirement, and I'll check every now and then. It just depresses me, especially recently. Uh, so, but I never checked that kind of stuff until I started a retirement fund. I'm going to have to work till I die. But as I, as I look at that, uh, I never checked that stuff until I had an investment. And all of a sudden, there was an interest rose in my heart. Why? Because my treasure was there, and my heart began to follow it. My heart was connected to the news of what was going on in those investments, That is true across the board. 
you can actually invest yourself back in love with your spouse. If your affection for your spouse is waning, if you find yourself being irritated, I'm going to give you a key. Invest something you really value in them and you will find you begin to treasure them more. You can appreciate your spouse or you can depreciate your spouse by the way you look at them. And one of the ways to appreciate them in value is to begin to invest things in them that you treasure. And in so doing, you steer your heart in that direction. God has given us, given us limited resources and those resources demand that we allocate them according to an internal value system. And that's what stewardship is. And it's part of God's design. And it is a really big deal. You look in the, the parables of Jesus. Jesus tells us at the end of the age, he's going to come back and he's going to ask about our stewardship. What did you do with what I gave you? To one he gave one talent, to one he gave three talents, to one he gave five. And it wasn't how many they had when he came back. It was how many, how many more they had. Did they multiply it or did they just maintain it? And they were rewarded based upon their multiplication. And so stewardship is a really big deal. And the great equalizer for all of us is the stewardship of our time. What are we spending our time on? Now let me circle this back around. The way to get more oil is to spend your time with him. This culture of ours has such an ability to choke out the word, choke out our affections, steal our heart away, it's not that we don't have any feelings for the Lord, but it's that our passions begin to wane. So what do we need to do? We need to take something that is valuable, and there's nothing more valuable than time because we all have a, the same amount, and it's a limited amount. The fact is, every one of us exchange our time for money. It's how we make money here, and it is also the, the currency of heaven that when we spend time with him, that we steal away and we say, Lord, I'm going to give you some time. I'm going to spend some time on, I'm going to take this great treasure that you've given me and I'm going to pour it out on you. I'm going to invest it in you. It'll bring our heart back online. And we need to begin to accrue some oil, some fresh oil. Because every one of us, there are times in our life where there's crises and there's, there's a waiting period and it's, it's discouragement. And what will carry you through is the oil that you drill yourself. You can't live on someone else's oil. The word that's going to mean more to you than any word is the word that you mind out for yourself in your own time with the Lord. That's what's going to warm your heart. I, I, all over the Bible, there's, there's passages where the Lord's spoken to me. And I start to read those, and all of a sudden, I'm back in that time where the Lord spoke to me out of that passage. And it warms my affections all over again. Because that was, that was an intimate time between me and the Lord. It's not the sermons I heard. Some of those sermons made me shout and yell. and I, You know, that was a great service. But those aren't the ones I return to. It's the ones he gave me myself. 
And I'm not unique. We're all that way. And so we need to spend time with him and get extra oil. You can't live off of somebody else's oil. Turn with me to, uh, let's go to Matthew, let me see here. I'm, trying to, I'm telling you, I'm having pro- problems this morning. Let's go to, uh, I want to say it would be Matthew I think it's six. Let's go to Matthew six. I want to say it's like verse 12. Let me see here. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's the verse we were just talking about. And the, the, the context of that is Jesus warning us against materialism. Warning us against living for temporary things. Now, you've got you've to uh, balance this by other passages. The book of Proverbs, Proverbs on wisdom, tell us to store up for the future. Uh, like the ant, the ant is wise and it stores up for the future. So it's not saying you don't have reserves, you don't have savings. It, uh, one of the reasons that Proverbs tells us that we store up is that a wise man will give an inheritance to his children's children. That you have something to give your grandchildren. But what Jesus is talking about is living in a disconnected way. That we see money and belongings and the earthly riches as tools to get things done. But they're not things that our heart is wrapped around. That's what he's saying. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives us this very sobering warning. He talks about the word of God. He talks about three types of soil, and one of the types of soil, the third one, he talks, really talks about four types of soil. The, the last one is the good soil, but the third type of soil was the thorny ground here, and he defines what that means. He says the thorns are the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this life, and the pleasures of this world. And those three things conspire and begin to wrap themselves around the life-giving word that God puts in our heart. And as it begins to spring up, begins to bring forth fruit, we're in the word, we're sitting under the word, we're letting it take root in our life. And as it begins to grow up, that those things begin to conspire to choke out the word. This is so true that when God spoke to the children of Israel through Moses coming out of Egypt, they're on the the border of the promised land. Moses isn't going to go in. So he warns them. He said, listen, when you prosper and you forget God, what a statement. Almost as it's inevitable. When you prosper and you forget God. Moses was alluding to the danger of the comfortable life. Every one of us, when, when life gets hard, we begin to cry out to him. All of a sudden, he's got our attention again. We've talked about this verse before, Psalm 42. Be not like the horse or mule who must be led by bit and bridle. 
I would guide you with mine eye. It's saying the Lord wants to catch, he wants to lead us with the look. My wife, when I see a certain look in her eye, she doesn't have to say anything. I know my wife. And I know that look. (laughs) Some I'm terrified of and others draw me in. But there's my wife. I know her look because there's an intimacy there. And God longs to lead us with the look. But he will, because he's a good father and he loves us enough, he will lead us by bit and bridle. He'll lead us by pain. He'll cause some pressure in the right side of your mouth so that you'll turn right. And if you won't turn left when he wants you to, he'll cause pain and pressure in the left side of your mouth until you become broken and submissive as a broken stallion that responds to its master. And so God warns us there's two economic systems. We can invest in this world and our, 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 our life gets entangled in it. God wants to bless us financially, but in a way that we can see it. It's just a tool. It's just necessary for this economy. But I live by a higher economy, and my real treasure is being stored up in heaven. I'm investing. I'm I'm always putting stuff in my account on the other side. I love Mike Bickle. He's got some great teaching, and he's, I've listened to him teach on this very principle, and he talked about how people have criticized him over the years and said, man, you've, you've got an aversion to money. It's like you need healing or something, because uh, he lives in the same little duplex he's lived in for the last 40 years. He, he finally went on a, a, a word fast a couple of years ago. He wasn't going to talk for 21 days. He just felt like the Lord led him to, and his wife came to him and said, listen, now that you can't talk, I'm letting you know I'm buying a car. That old piece of junk you've been driving, I'm bu- and you can't say no, because you've vowed no, no words. I'm buying a car, whether you like it or not, and got a car. And so people say, well, Mike, you got a problem with money. You got this aversion to money. It's like this, this extreme reaction to what I'm talking about. And Mike said, no. What you need to understand is I really like wealth and power. And so I'm storing up in heaven. He said, wait till you see what I live in up there. He said, I've been sending it all over. And there is a mindset that we say, I'm living for eternity. That not only is a, a, an awesome thing because we take, we, we, it, that produces great fruit here and there's reward on the other side. And I would, I would tell you that what's, what God's gonna make the, your crown out of is the works of your life. Scripture says that some people's life is going to be wood, hay, and straw, and it's going to go through the blast furnace of God's judgment, and it's going to come out as a little ash heap, and that's what your crown will be made out of. Put a little ash on your forehead, and like a good Catholic, you will grieve because you look at your wasted life. And then there's others. Wood, or, uh, gold, silver, and precious stones, and it'll go through the blast furnace, and it'll come out, and God will mold this beautiful crown, and he'll put it on your head, and it'll be the sum total of your life. It's an amazing thing and a fearful thing, that you will, you will wear on your head the sum total of your life lived, and you know what you're going to do with it? You're going to throw it at his feet in worship. 
It's going to be like, we're going to say all over again, Jesus, now that I see you for who you really are, I want to give it to you all over again. I want to surrender my life to you. And we're going to take our reward and we're going to throw it at his feet because he's the only one worthy. And on that day, we're going to wish we had a bigger crown to give him. But there's another benefit to this thing of investing in eternity. That mindset keeps our heart disentangled from this world so that God can just move things through our possession and they become tools for the kingdom of God. But our heart isn't wed to them. I, I really do believe God really wants to bless his children. I believe God will, God, there, there, are, there are hindrances in our mindsets and hindrances in our heart that we, can, we wouldn't be able to steward it well. But as we deal with both of them, and some people, they got a good heart, but their mind is, they have mind blockages. Other people that have a right mind about it, but their heart needs some adjusting. We get those things lined up. I do believe that God wants to bless his children. I have no doubt about that. He's a good father. I want to bless my children, but not more than they can handle. But the problem is, is when we get tied to the things of this world, so let me read it again. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Anything, any treasure this side of heaven begins to diminish. But to lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I believe the Lord, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. I believe the Lord wants to touch our hearts this morning and address the drift in our hearts. And there's some of us that our hearts have become entangled by the worries of this life. It's not just the riches of this life. Sometimes it's the worry. The very real concerns. Jesus says later on in this passage, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat and you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. You're going to have to clothe your body. Jesus is acknowledging, hey, these are very real concerns. But he's saying, you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. I'll take care of those things. But disentangle your heart. And some of you, you have burdens and worries and concerns. And even when you come before the Lord, it's like these, these things are just barraging your mind. And the Lord wants to lift those off of you today. He wants to give you a fresh revelation of who he is. And there's some of you this morning that God wants to break in and untangle your heart from some things that you've given yourself to. You need deliverance from those things. I had someone come up to me in worship with a couple of different scriptures and the sum of it was this, that there's people here that God has already set free, the prison door is open, but they've gotta realize and walk out of those things. I'm gonna ask you to stand this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, for your glory. We thank you for who you really are, Lord. And again, Lord, often I feel bad about even praying, win me again. I shouldn't need that, Lord. One glimpse of you should have been enough to keep me. But Lord, I humbly admit my heart is prone to drifting. So Lord, we're asking, 
pursue us. There's a wonderful little verse in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Word. It says this, Lord, your, your, your lamb has strayed. Seek your servant. I love that. It's like, God, bring me back on track. Win my heart all over again. Lord, do, do what I'm in, I've proven I'm incapable of doing. This morning, if you need to get right with the Lord, if you're here and you're saying, man, I, I want to get right with God. This, this is me, man. I, I, need to, I need to get things right. Might be something you've done before. It might be the first time, but you're saying, I want, I want to step over the line. I want to commit my life to Jesus. I want you to raise your hand right now. You're saying, I want to get right with God. Amen. See those two hands back there. Anybody else? You're saying, I want to get right with the Lord this morning. If that's you, I want to call you forward this morning. We want to pray with you. I'm going to bring others forward in just a moment. But if that's you, you're saying, I need to get right with the Lord. I want you to come forward right now. Now, secondly, if you're here this morning and you're saying, man, my heart is wandering. It's like, man, I am, I am, it's like there's tentacles of worry and all these other concerns about this world that are holding me down. And I, I, want, I want it to break through. I want God to reignite my passion. I need the zeal in my heart to be restored. And you're asking the Lord to touch you this morning. I want you to come forward. We want to pray for you. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come forward and line up across the front and intercept these coming down. You're saying, I need, I need God to reignite my heart. You know your passion is running low. Listen, I have to pray this all the time. I ask the Lord, God, reignite my heart. Tenderize me before you, Lord. If you need prayer, just step forward. We got these that are standing facing you. They're ready to pray for you. So just step forward. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.